How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Somebody revved up a chainsaw outside my window, like right as we started this. This is kind of creepy. A chainsaw, chainsaw. It's getting your ass, ass raw. Ass raw. And if my day keeps going this way, I just might break your fucking face tonight. Give me something to break. Man, I, I've been on a Limp Biscuit kick for the last like uh, 21 years, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't think of a better way to start the second part of our alien episode than with a little reminiscing about Fred Durst and the great. Lip biscuit. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock, a podcast dedicated to the history and evolution of cult and genre movies. I am but one of your hosts, Gary Horde. I am but two of. Wait, oh, that doesn't work. I'm still, still only one of your hosts. Yeah. I'm still also one host, uh, but not Gary Horn. I am Justin Bishop, joined by the, our third host. I don't know where I'm I am. I am also a butt one host. Hmm. <laughs> he is the, he is a butt one. I'm su- I'm such a, I'm such a butt one. <laughs> anyway, that's Mr. Todd. I don't know what he's saying. Right? No, oh. no, Todd, Mr. Oh. Todd A. Davis. Hey, Welcome everybody. back to the show. I'm glad you're here because you were here for the first part of this discussion. It's good that you're here for the second part. <laughs> this would be really weird. So anyway, let's continue with our story of Dan O'Bannon, the unsung legacy of Mr. Daniel O'Bannon. Last Previ- week we discussed previously, previously on <laughs> Cinema Shock, we were we discussed we we started discussing Alien last week. Yeah. Probably the most well-known movie. I mean, definitely the most well-known movie of O'Bannon's career, unless you count Star Wars, I guess. But he only worked on that for a couple months, and and I don't even know if he's credited in the in the end credits. But uh, as far as ones that are generally associated with Dan O'Bannon. I'd say Alien is up there at the top of the list. So when last we left, Alien, you know, O'Bannon and and his co-writer Ron Shusett, they'd gotten their script in the hands of 20th Century Fox and Walter Hill, who had fucked with his script and all that. And I'd go back and listen to that episode. If you're listening to part two of this, you're going to be very confused. <laughs> but uh, at the end of the last episode, we had just signed on a director to direct alien that was a man by the name of ridley scott and with a director in place it was time to cast the film so with only seven human characters in the story ridley scott knew that he needed strong actors in the roles so that he could focus on the film's visual style because he is a very visual director can i say something about ridley really quickly uh that i love about him uh one of the things that now, of course, I'm basing this solely, solely on interviews with Ridley himself, but who knows what he acts like on set. But he seems like, as uh, with all of these movies that we've talked about, he seems to be very much about collaboration. 
and he realizes the importance of everybody on set, uh, not just himself. Like obviously he has a creative vision and uh, he, he talks a lot in stuff I saw about the cast. Uh, You got to feel that in your gut and it's 50% of your problems solved. If you get the right cast, they're going to help you with a lot of the decisions that get made and a lot of things that happen in the scenes. He said that with this cast that he put together, he felt like basically that he had nailed it, that that he had, they knew something special was happening right when they were going in there. Now he, he wondered about how people felt about it because he does say he's, he can be an ass on set from time to time. But his uh, interesting quote there was, he says, nobody respects you for being nice and you got to get it done and you wear what you got when it's over. So you got to make sure at the end of the day, your vision is the one that makes it on screen because you're, you're living with it for the rest of your life. There, there, there's going to be issues you hear about Dan O'Bannon coming into this. And uh, for all intents and purposes, Dan O'Bannon had no other place on set. Like Dan O'Bannon didn't have to be involved with Jack nor shit with alien <laughs> at this point uh, really. And it seemed like Scott it straight up Scott in the commentary talks about, and maybe this is a better point for later, but he says that he always felt like he was searching for Dan O'Bannon's approval on the movie. And he's not sure that he ever got it. And he, huh. it was, it's, which is sad, but he said he loved dark star. You know, Dan had had experience directing there or just like in his collaboration with John Carpenter and he wanted to live up to, he, he thought a lot of John Carpenter. He wanted to live up to what Dan was expecting. He said that he always felt that Dan's innermost feeling was to be the director, like that he wanted to take control of the whole shot, the whole shoot. He knew coming in that Scott wasn't a sci-fi fan, um, like initially, he was just doing this because as we discussed last episode, Justin mentioned that star Wars had just happened. So sci-fi was hot and he knew that Scott was like the fifth choice of directors and uh, Scott that knew that he was the fifth choice, but he wanted to honor uh, the vision of the original screenwriters. And uh, he, he, he knew, he knew that he had initially uh, Ronald Shusset's, struggle with that one (laughs) i I do struggle with it every time he had his approval he gave him a lot of great feedback but dan o'bannon was not so forthcoming with a lot of approval and so it it, it was kind of sad hearing that i mean o'bannon seems like a tough guy to please honestly especially when something is like his his baby you know and and that's what he it feels like alien is and he felt like he i mean i think it might stem from the fact that he got fucked over so bad by john carpenter that he doesn't want to go through that again. He doesn't want another director fucking him over and taking all of the credit for something that is rightfully at least somewhat his. Yeah. And I think, I think he spent most of his career afraid that that was going to happen. And unfortunately it did kind of continue to happen over and over to him. Anyway. So here we are. And uh, Ridley Scott's on board. He's, he's quite the character himself and he gets to uh, choose his cast, which like I said, he, he views as like, 50% 50% of the movie right there, just as yes. far as getting this right. So as we mentioned uh, in our last episode, in O'Bannon's earliest versions of the script, the crew of the Nostromo was all male. Uh, but he and Shusette later wrote the roles that were more 
more generic, uh, even putting a note in the script, if you look at the, the script, and I'm not sure if this was a note by O'Bannon and Shusett or by Hill and Guiler, but there's a note on the script that says the crew is unisex and all parts are interchangeable for men or women. So this gave Scott and his casting director the freedom to interpret the characters however they wanted. Do you know what's weird, by the way, side note, is that uh, on some, apparently on some anthology thing later, and I don't know if it's from this note and you saying that kind of made me think of this, but uh, they had included some note about Dallas and one of the other characters, and I can't remember who, afforded like transition in sex, like it had like uh, it was. Do you, do you know what I'm talking? Yeah, it was Lambert, uh, Veronica Cartwright's character, um, and it's in it's in Aliens. When you see there's something about when you when you see I think the list of when in Aliens when Ripley is being debriefed, I guess you see like a list of the Nostromo's crew, and there's something about that. But it was it was I guess written in James Cameron's like dossier character dossiers. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so you which you can read, I think, on the alien or the aliens, like th- that quadrilogy box set or whatever. But yeah, uh, uh, the Lambert role was written as as a uh, as a trans character. Wow. That's interesting. I just yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. I just thought that was I had never I had never known that before until like yesterday. I think I read that. That's cool. Yeah. So talking about the cast, the uh, the Nostromo's captain, one of the first roles to be cast was. Tom Skerritt uh, as Dallas. Skerritt had actually originally read the screenplay early on in the film's development. Uh, He was approached pretty early on, but he turned it down because he was unimpressed with the writing quality of the script and unimpressed with the film's budget, which at that point they were, you know, envisioning as a Roger Corman low budget horror movie. Because he thought, he said this in an interview, he's like, I thought it was going to end up looking like an Ed Wood movie. If you try to do a sci-fi movie on this kind of budget, it's going to look like Plan 9 from Outer Space. But then after the screenplay was rewritten and the budget was expanded, he was approached again, and then he signed on. He, he saw the improvement and saw the potential of the project. I saw the name Harrison Ford was tossed around in a couple of places, but I couldn't ever like, find like a verification from someone. Uh, I mean, I'm sure in, in 1977 Hollywood, after American Graffiti and Star Wars had come out, Harrison Ford's name was probably on every casting director's list for any role. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that yeah. probably makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, and I also see something I was trying to like find more information about, but apparently Scarrett like pulled that thing of like when he came back in of asking for a percentage of the profits too yeah. from this, uh, which may have which... been the case. But uh, Ridley says that he just loved how Scarrett chose to play Dallas. Just that very like chill. Yeah. Just that he was laid back with, yeah. with everybody. He felt like everybody else would have taken this role and played him as like very brute and forceful and just rugged or something. And Scarrett played him with this like real, like just easygoing personality. And like, he tried to stay out of arguments and just, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And just, he thought that was very really, non-confrontational. Yeah. yeah. Just there to, just there to do the job, get the job done. So for the role of Ripley, Scott, Scott wanted that character to be female and, and cast, and that role was a 29-year-old off-Broadway actress by the name of Sigourney Weaver. Uh, Weaver had, uh, she didn't really have any film experience before this. She, she appears very briefly in, I think it's uh, Annie Hall, uh, the Woody Allen movie. She appears in like one scene, but she was primarily a stage actor and not a very well-known one at the time. And she had actually originally been considered for the role of Lambert, but when she auditioned, 
uh, Ridley Scott actually encouraged her to take the lead role. Yeah, you know, Scott swears he knew Weaver like right at the beginning, like the second she walked in, he swears he was sold on her. And Weaver said she was wearing her hooker boots that day, so that's probably why. But uh, there <laughs> well, were, I mean, she's already like six, uh, like six feet, six one. She's really tall. So maybe if with added heels on, she probably would have looked pretty imposing. Yeah. Um, there, there were rumors, you know, again, about like somebody like Meryl Streep was pretty close or something like that. But I don't know. In the, in the stuff I saw, Scott was adamant that he knew it was going to be Sigourney Weaver right when he saw her. Uh, and that he thought, the, he felt like one of the master strokes of this movie was uh, making her the leader, like the the final person, like the the one in charge, like just her presence and authority that she carries. And uh, that in most movies, she might be like one of the first to go, like in a normal horror movie. But like in this one, she's like, she's the the person. Uh, well, what, what's interesting about that is that she is not like a, any any kind of leader or even a main character for the first 40 minutes of the movie probably yeah she 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 has these she has these moments of like yeah but she she barely speaks early on in the movie nothing that would indicate if you've never seen the movie that she would end up being the main character yeah yeah it's like she slowly like pushes her way in but yeah yeah towards the time where they finally come back from the alien spaceship there's there's the moments where you could see like little details like she obviously like while everybody's investigating the ship she doesn't like ash she doesn't trust Ash for some reason. Yeah. And uh, by the way, side note, I have uh, my dog is named Ripley. I just wanted to throw that out there based on <laughs> this character. Uh, I also have a cat named Ash, but that was from Evil Dead. But for the for the sake of this episode, it nice. could be based on this android. They also not tend to fight be. with each other. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Shusset says that the studio... Like for a little while, some of the people from the studio when they were watching the dailies didn't even like Sigourney Weaver that much. Like they thought she was like underplaying it too much. Like mm-hmm. that she didn't. Uh, like she needs to be. I don't know something more. And he said he he like he actually went to bat for her, like talked about that he and Scott all thought it was like man, look at her eyes though. Like the eyes is where it's at. And he said he used the Orson Welles quote uh, when he was talking about Gary Cooper. Apparently, he said the. That camera either loves you or it doesn't. All in the eyes. And he was like, Sigourney Weaver just had something about her just in her face. Weaver even tells a story about being in the, like when the, the, sitting with the casting director and Scott's like asking her like, what's, what do you think this movie's like? What do you feel about this? And she's like, I don't know. It feels really bleak. She said the casting director was like sitting over next to her like, no, 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 no. Just shut up. Just shut up. But like Scott's like, <laughs> I mean, that's it though. That's that's what this <laughs> you, is. You got it. That's what it is. <laughs> but but so, another thing they did was they ran through like uh stuff. I, I I didn't know this until I was watching the commentary that they brought in like a bunch of girls from the offices and had her run through lines and like watched her act out like one of the scenes or something and asked the women what they thought about Sigourney Weaver. And people were like compared to Jane Fonda. There were like other comparisons, but like some of the women were just like, wow, she seems tough, you know? And they actually took that as even more encouragement that we've got the right person that was like, the women are behind this yeah. one. That's cool. The thing that stuck out to me was when uh, when the crew is coming back from the alien ship and she's keeping them in quarantine, but Ash lets them in, her voice is so 
calm, you see her kind of stepping into that leadership role of, hey, I know this is going to be scary. Yes, he's, you know, got this thing attached to his face, but we have to maintain the quarantine. And then later when she starts hollering at different members of the crew, like you see the range and just she becomes she gets, you know, this leadership role thrust upon her. And uh, and it's it's really fascinating to just watch the eyes. I mean, if you watch her eyes throughout this entire show, it's really fantastic. I mean, she 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 portrays more authority than Dallas ever did. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like she she has more leadership qualities that we see here than Dallas ever did. Mm -hmm. And I think that moment you're talking about where she's refusing to let them on the ship. That's like the first step of, hey, she's making a better decision than than Dallas is uh, as the captain, because she's following protocol regardless. And, you know, it turns out when you break quarantine, bad shit happens. Yeah. Who'd have thought? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like you got something behind that, Justin. (laughs) So she had she had uh, originally been called in to play to play Lambert, but got cast as as Ripley. Veronica Cartwright had originally auditioned for Ripley and she got cast as Lambert, which is, oh. I thought was pretty fun. So, uh, and then of course, as Brett, one of the Nostromo's engineer is the great Harry Dean Stanton, uh, yes. who is just one of the all time, just one of my favorite actors. I just love that guy. I love his face. Everything about has, him just seems cool. Right. He's so cool. Right. <laughs> he really is. Ridley Scott and says then, his very first words. Harry Dean Stanton's first words to him during the audition were uh, during the audition. So I feel like you've got to know a little bit about what you're doing when you come into audition. But he said Harry Dean Stanton's first words to him during the audition were, I don't like science fiction and I don't like monsters. (laughs) (laughs) But then, but then Ridley Scott's like, yeah, neither do I. <laughs> Scott said he was amused by him, and yeah. he could. He ended up trying to convince Harry Dean Stanton to take the role. Uh, yeah. but that, that really was Scott's response to that. He's like, "Neither do I, but I think I can make this one work." <laughs> but yeah, like I mean, even during the commentary, like Harry Dean Stanton's just like so laid back. He's in there with like his little sections are with like Tom Skerritt and uh, Cartwright. They're they're like talking about how Stanton's like. I just remember this one time where my character would say, right, after every right. time this guy said something, so I'd say, yeah. right. And then, right. Yeah. And he's like, I just thought that was a nice little touch, that he'd be like busy doing other stuff, and he'd just say, right, all the time. And then one time, <laughs> like, I think he was talking to uh, Scary. He's like, and then you were like, in the middle of like this, the scene, you were like, why do you keep saying right after everything he says? And I'm like, why don't you go fuck yourself? <laughs> and, <he's> like, <laughs> and then Scarrett stood up and it's like, if he gets to change lines, then I get to change my lines. And then Scott's like, all right, everybody calm down, Harry. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> oh man, that's great. I love I really love Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. So the Nostromo's Scott, other engine. Well, I just was gonna say one other thing that I thought was very interesting is Scott said he was like also the nicest guy in the world. That like there's the scene where like they're doing the whole, you know, the the whole scene with the water coming down and the chains and everything, which by the way, Scott says he fought for. Everybody was like, This scene makes no sense. Like, what room is this in a ship that water's pouring down and there's chains hanging everywhere? And Scott's like, I'm gonna assume it's condensation from the cooling. That's what he said. Yeah, yeah, he says condensation. And who gives a shit? It's a cool looking yeah. scene. It looks cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said that uh, 
They got him to play all of this up. And by the way, on the special edition, there's a scene there that's cut out in the normal version where the alien is sitting on the chains, like yeah. curled up, just like watching him the whole time. And it's pretty fucking wicked. I, that's the one scene from the director's cut. We'll, we'll talk more about that later. But that's the one scene I'm like, that's pretty, it's pretty fucking wicked. Anyway, he said that they killed him and everything was done. And he was just like, uh, Harry Dean Stanton. The only thing he ever, only feedback he ever from that point on got from Harry Dean Stanton was Harry Dean Stanton walked up to him and was like, Hey, man, thank you so much for doing all those close ups of my face. <laughs> he was just That's like, cool. All right. <laughs> he's like, So he's really pleasant. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> he was just happy we took close ups of him. So the Nostromo's other engineer, Parker, was played by uh, the Yafet Koto, the late great Yafet. Koto just uh, died about two weeks ago, I think. Yeah, uh, at the age of eighty-one, uh, he he is. I love, I love. There's another actor. I just love him. I mean, this is probably his most well-known role, I guess. Uh, but he, a few years earlier, he had been the villain in James Bond uh, in *Live and Let Die*, which is not the best James Bond movie. It is the best James Bond theme song, uh, but *Live and Let Die* is. It's a fun movie, but it's got some. It, it's one where they try to take some like black exploitation elements to it, uh-huh. and then he plays Mister Big. Turns into Mister Big at the end, which was like I think Rick Baker's very first makeup job, and it's not very good. I totally forgot <laughs> but, about that, but yeah, yeah. But that's Yafet, and he. I mean, he's a he's incredible. He's so there's something really commanding about his presence, but he's so natural. That's what is all of this cast. I think is they they bring a natural like element to their performances that they feel like they feel real part of it's because of how they look but because they don't look like your typical hollywood cast but they they all have this way of performing that feels just very real like you Mm. believe that these guys have lived together for months and months on a spaceship together he was known to be kind of difficult on set and he would antagonize other actors like purposely to get a performance out of them like specifically sigourney weaver Mm. He would try to, act, you know, get her energy level up, especially like in the scene where he says, uh, like, I'm, I'm just for killing the goddamn thing, you know, where they're like going back and forth. He, they would, he, he was like in, intentionally antagonizing her uh, to get her angry and sounding angry during that scene. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was actually about to break that up that I saw later that that apparently was something he and Scott had talked about that. Like he was that Scott had instructed him during, that seed standing around like to keep cutting her off interrupt her like in the middle of her speaking her lines like you know like yeah. try to yeah see that with see, her when i gets... when i mentioned last week about some of the stuff felt really natural that's the scene i i had in mind and it was just like was that scripted because that yeah. boy that feels so real <laughs> it does it's it's really good yeah but uh ronald shusset says that what time during the filming, like they're standing there and Yafet came up to him. It was just like, thank you so much for this. Do you know, I've been waiting 15 years for this. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I've been waiting 15 years to be in one of the all time great movies. Oh, and I just tell. thought that was awesome. And he, and then says the same thing. He was just like the, the foresight on him. <laughs> like it was just, it yeah. was really incredible. Wow. That's crazy. And then, of course, we've got John Hurt cast as Kane. John Hurt, another actor who wasn't very well-known at the time. Of course, he's incredibly well-known now. Yeah. Uh, he looks Kane like a being, damn kid here. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. I mean, he, he, he looks <laughs> super he young looks, here. He looks younger than he does as, like, Ollivander and Harry Potter. Or, well, sure, sure. <laughs> but he's 39 here, and he looks 
he looks older than 39 in this movie to me. Uh, he's that's a because I'm 39 and I feel like I look younger than what John Hurt looks like in this movie. He looks like he's had a harder life than I have. He was he was one of those guys they went after too. Like they they tried to get him, and then well, he, he wasn't originally cast, right? Yeah, I mean they they were they wanted him and he couldn't do it because he had a job, uh, and so they ended up hiring this guy uh, John Finch, and uh, Finch ended up getting sick right before they started filming and uh, while, while they were filming or while they were filming had diabetes yeah. he found out he had diabetes oh geez and he had to go yeah, off i mean the movie. Um, then, ridley like, scott tells a story uh, sorry to interrupt you but ridley scott tells a story where john finch they're actually filming a scene with him and he just has no energy and like looks awful he's like yellow and and ridley scott says they they stop the take and they're like are you okay and he's like I am not okay. Like I feel awful. And they had to like lift him out of the seat Whoa. to help him offset. But yeah, he ended up finding out he had diabetes and I guess he, his blood sugar was low and he ended up dropping out of the film because of it. So then what they ended up doing is like, I mean, cause John Hurt was supposed to be filming this role in Africa. in South Africa. He had been confused. He thinks with John Hurd, uh, you know, like home alone. <laughs> who had been other stuff besides home alone (laughs) (laughs) but that you you know what i'm talking about when i say the dad at home alone Um, yeah but he said that he was on a like blacklist and and like like or he he couldn't go to work in south i i'll just be honest i'll be straight up i felt weird about saying the blacklist in africa all of the same thing so (laughs) (laughs) But he was on a list like he couldn't act in Africa, like he couldn't come work there because Heard had been very vocal about opposing apartheid. And so they didn't want him there. So Hurt was like, I also opposed it. But like, I don't <laughs> think he's like, I wasn't on a list. Like I hadn't been like overly like protesting it or anything like Heard has. So I think that's where the confusion was. Anyway, Hurt couldn't do the job. And so when Scott and stuff found out about that, they approached Hurt again and came and got him and talked to him like the night of like he literally like drove all night that night oh, after wow. they got the call and, and came and worked on it well yeah like well ridley scott went to his house and they like went and gave him like a pitch you know no time to like read the script he's like i, I he pitched the film to him and john hurt was you know he liked it and he was like okay let's do this i'm you know when do i start and ridley scott's like no tomorrow morning <laughs> so, he, so he went on set the next day and not met any of the other crew members or anything at that point. And, wow. Uh, for one of probably the most well-known roles of his career. And then you had Ian Holm cast as Ash, the, the cyborg science officer on the Nostromo. Spoiler. Uh, well, we're hoping everyone has watched the movie at this point. <laughs> but Ian Holm was another guy who, you know, we know him now because he, he was in you know, the Terry Gilliam movies, The Hobbit and all that stuff. Right. But at the time, he was pretty much just a stage actor. He'd done a little bit of television here and there, but he was mostly a stage actor. Uh, and then we, we really have to mention a guy named Balaji Bodejo. So this mm-hmm. is an actor who, he, well, he is the actor who plays the alien. And he was a Nigerian artist who was working as a graphic designer in London when a member of Ridley Scott's casting team spotted him in a pub. And at six foot nine, he was picked to play the part due largely to his height. And he was very thin and had very long legs. So Alien, uh, you know, 
is really as he's not like an actor. He's not a stunt man. He didn't go on to have a big stunt career. Alien is his only film credit. Yep. <laughs> and his his family would later like reveal that he actually returned to Nigeria in 1980, right after this movie, and opened his own art gallery there, where which he continued to run. I think through his death, he died uh, a, a few. He died pretty young, I believe. I forget why, but mm. yeah, I mean that's another stellar casting choice because just you know you, you can't just cast anybody in that role or it's going to look like a man in a suit because of his proportions because he is very thin very very tall very long limbs like he even when you put a the man in a rubber suit it doesn't look like just a guy in a suit you know right yeah it's it's so weird like i, I kept seeing his height listed everywhere from six nine to seven one so i never like could figure out either way that's exactly incredibly <laughs> he, he, he's a he's a very tall man <laughs> And uh, yeah, supposedly they, they had him do some uh, like Tai Chi and mind classes or something to kind of learn how to slow down his movements a little bit yeah. uh, as they were getting him in there. But yeah, I mean, you, you can find quotes from him from like right around the time after the movie where, you know, he says like acting wasn't really his calling necessarily, but he's going to go back into graphic art and uh, he's like, unless another movie comes along. So it seems like he's like open to the idea. But uh, yeah. anyway, poor guy could not sit down. They didn't realize that till they were already filming. He had that big had that tail, tail on the back of his suit. Yeah. Finally, somebody noticed. They're like, hey, man, uh, guy can't sit down. So they had to build like a special swing for him on set that he could go sit <laughs> in. <laughs> but Higher or wooden plank. <laughs> but 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 at this time you know with star wars and everything i mean the studio had pitched people like peter mayhew and stuff for this role and uh wow. so it's interesting they found this guy and just out of nowhere he's like beating out peter mayhew to like play this role just uh which i mean no it's perfect the the thing with this cast i mean this cast is incredible like i said they they bring a really natural vibe to it in, in their performances but i think also it's because they're not like they're all, they're not like a bunch of young kids, you know, uh, Sigourney Weaver was 29 at the time and she was the youngest of the cast. I think Veronica Cartwright was just a little, a few months older than her. Uh, Tom Skerritt's like 46, you know, like Heritage Stanton's in his early fifties at this point. If you were casting this movie now, if Hollywood was making this movie now, everyone in this, on the crew of the Nostromo would be like under 25 and just sexy movie star looks instead of like looking yeah. like fucking Ian Holm. Well, that was what that's that's what I my first thought was like they're actors, not movie yeah. stars. They're, yeah, but in, they but in, in like, that in that they don't look. They look like they look like a group of they like real people. They they look like they're working in space, <laughs> truck drivers in space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, and I think that's Ridley Scott said that's fifty percent of the job. And by casting like real actors in these roles, like that leaves him to work on the the visuals and the and the pacing and all the other things that make this movie great. Because he already cast great actors who, yeah, I mean, he still worked with the actors to get certain things out of their performances, but he didn't have to work as hard at that because they were already good at what they did. Ridley Scott seems fun too, that he has like all of these other ideas, like while he's filming the movie, you know, stuff that he's not even putting in the movie itself. But, you know, like kind of the opposite of actually what Dan O'Bannon kind of talked about, like, he, you know, in the last episode we mentioned, like, he was just like, I don't give a shit where they come from or like whatever. Scott talks about like filming and having ideas that like there's, there's these interpersonal relationships that they all have to that he thinks they should kind of convey. Like, 
I think he even had at one point like a sex scene pitch from like Dallas and uh, Ripley that they would have they would have had a relationship like this is like a studio note. What's that? This is a note from the studios. This was Scott saying like he he actually like had thought of that. Like he he thought of that. He thought of that, that that like he wanted to show like some of the passing of the time, like some of the stuff later. And I think later in Prometheus, he kind of plays on that a little bit, like with uh, the captain there. And uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Anyway, the better Prometheus. Less, less said about Prometheus, the better. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just that they'll pass the time. He says even, I I mean, and I swear this is in the commentary, he says even in, like, with Veronica Cartwright and Gordy Weaver, that they'd have, like, had, like, a deeper relationship that they were, he said that they <laughs> even pitched, like, <laughs> yeah, that uh, well, he was just saying, like, early on, he had considered, like, maybe one of the first lesbian, like, couples or something, like, just early huh. on. Or maybe they weren't even couples, but... Uh, just that they were open to that kind of relationship when you spend hey, like years in space. You know? Seven people on a ship together for years, not a lot of options, man. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. it. That's exactly what you're saying. It's like just different ways they pass the time, basically. Yeah. So as the film moved towards production, O'Bannon's influence on the project waned. Walter Hill had trimmed his script, even changed the names of some of the characters, changed most of the dialogue. And Scott was... Ridley Scott was fine with those changes, but he all, he still wanted O'Bannon to take another look. He still valued Dan O'Bannon's input. And O'Bannon said, quote, so I went through and repaired some of the damage, but because I had been ordered not to go back to the original, some of the best moments were lost. It was a sad degrading of my screenplay. I was convinced the picture was ruined. You know, even at this point in time, before shootings are just about to begin, like he, Dan O'Bannon is still... I, again, I, I, and this is me being an armchair psychologist on this, but I think it's because of the way that he got screwed with John Carpenter that he's just overprotective of his work. I mean, honestly, if you're a screenwriter in Hollywood, that's the nature of the job. Yeah, you, <laughs> you know, like you write. It. I mean, they tell they tell any any you know writing class that you sit in is like, look you know, when it comes to screenplays or comic book scripts or anything like that, it's a collaborative effort. Your yeah. final draft is probably going to change. And it's yeah. just, it's just the nature of it. It's not, it's not meant to be a personal attack, but it's, you know, those changes most of the time end up making it better. I mean, some of the time, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes they make yeah. them better. Sometimes it's better. <laughs> well, it's good to have, it's good to have that, it's good to have that objective third party to say, hey, this may this may not work. This one thing you've got here might not work. It might be better to change it to X. You know, that's always right. good to have. Yeah, yeah. It's always good to have other people, you know, giving you notes or, or making suggestions. But I think he felt slighted. He felt like they were taking mm-hmm. something he'd worked very hard on and turning it into something that he had never intended. Ah. So principal photography for Alien took place at Shepperton Studios near London from July to October of 1978. And O'Bannon was there. He hung around on set, uh, getting into everyone's business and even sometimes giving orders because I guess he thought he was the director. (laughs) He didn't like, he actually uh, at first did not like the direction of the film. He had envisioned kind of a fast paced comic book style, but Scott's style was more atmospheric and a slower, more methodical pace than kind of what O'Bannon had uh, envisioned when he was writing the script. Mm. Sometimes they'd be watching dailies and he would yell too slow. 
<laughs> Scott would have to like take him to the side and be like, Hey, you know, this, that I appreciate the criticism, but that might be better if you we were to do that in pilot in, in private, instead of just, you know, screaming it out in the middle of dailies. <laughs> now there are later interviews with O'Bannon where he says that, you know, he was watching dailies and he started to see the movie come together and, and, and was happy with what he was seeing. Yeah, it's just tough. You got to imagine that's just frustrating for Scott. Like I said, he was he was secretly had this desire to please O'Bannon, and there's just no pleasing O'Bannon. There is no pleasing Dan <laughs> O'Bannon. Uh, Dan O'Bannon, he would he would make suggestions and offer criticisms, uh, none of which endeared him to Scott or anyone else on set. But it didn't get him like kicked off. Like they still let him hang around. What did get him kicked off of the set was when he thought that his typewriter had been stolen. So he. He would have, he had like a secretary there and he would dictate his thoughts to the secretary. She'd type them on his typewriter. When he went, he went into his office one day and found his typewriter missing and and he got upset and he stormed into a meeting between Scott and the producers and he saw his typewriter in there in that meeting. And, and then in in typical Dan O'Bannon fashion, he let his temper get the best of him. He he flew into a rage about his stupid typewriter and Scott told him to calm down. He's like, we just borrowed it, man. We're, we're going to give it back. We just needed to use a typewriter. Uh, but O'Bannon was not easy to settle down once he got into a fury. And so a few days later, he got kicked off the set and was sent back to the U S wow. Jeez. Yeah. He was hypercritical, like on the set from everything I saw and just, uh, I mean, although, I mean, he, you know, he he defended a lot of aspects of the movie that would become like the biggest parts of it. Like we talked about with the facehugger thing, he brought on Ron Cobb, who like designed the interiors, that kind of thing had to, you know, he, he was a big advocate for HR Giger's designs that were used and, and that whole thing. And, uh, but he would, he would nitpick a lot was their their problem with him and and like justin said until he lost his temper with scott scott was his biggest advocate and yeah finally lost his patience with him they sent him on like producers none of them were like uh, big fans of him being on set at all he had tried to like uh after the first week of shooting he was like wanting to like get copies of the dailies or like view the dailies that gordon carroll was the name i saw is like gordon carroll he he is part of the uh brandy wine productions with, right with right he said he refused them it was like you're not getting these uh, yeah but obana got around that by going into the projectionist booth and watching the dailies on his own <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he's like if they won't let me in there i'll just go and watch them with the projector but those guys in walter hill and everything they had no respect for obana they ignored mm-hmm. him and what it gave him no credit <laughs> like after the movie became famous yeah. like they they all were not fans scott still speaks fondly of him but yeah just. Scott, Scott was a fan. But, but before he went home, though, Obana did have one more crucial contribution to the film. So he was worried that Ridley Scott wasn't in tune with the horror of the day. Like he, which he was right. Ridley Scott was not a horror guy. He was not a horror filmmaker. He wasn't a sci fi filmmaker. But, uh, you know, he felt that in order for Alien to be successful, it had to have some shock value. You know, it had to have something to like really get in the audience's face. So O'Bannon set up a screening of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love how we're going full circle on this. Yeah. He said, he said to Scott, he said, you're not going to like this film, but just see it. He's like, you just, you just have to watch it. 
So Scott watched the film in a screening room on the Fox lot. Walter Hill joined him. Walter Hill actually walked into the screening room. He's like, hey, what you got going on here? What's, what are you watching? And he's got like a Coke and a cheeseburger. And he's going to eat. And at the end of the movie, they, the two of them sat. They watched the whole movie. At the end of the movie, he had not touched his Coke, had not touched his cheeseburger. Like they were both entranced with this movie. And wow. that kind of got Scott in like, it kind of got him to think like we have to have that something that like really just grabs the audience. So when it was over, Scott was ready to shoot that scene, that scene that, that that shocking scene in alien, Mm. uh, the biggest scene, the most well-known scene in alien. And that was the chest burster scene. Yeah. uh, Scott says the thing that nailed me to a wall was Texas shades all massacre. It was so shocking to me. The places they went that no one else had ever gone before. Uh, he said the things the things he remembers during that time were, were that movie. And he said the other film that I w- that he would give credit to is The Exorcist. He said he, he did see what Friedkin had done. And yeah. uh, he thought he had nailed it too. Um, mm. He said to just take it like a, just a mundane, unlikely scenario and then making it like turn into this terrible like scenario like just uh, just uh whatever he just thought they, these two films were like iconic which they are and uh yeah, yeah he, was, he right. was just like uh he's like it's kind of sad because it, it, he, he talks a little bit about it there just like it's kind of sad because there's so many horror movies and people just settle for less he's like but you gotta keep making movies i guess but he's like those guys there was real art there with what yeah. they were doing so in the script the chestburster scene all it said was like this thing emerges. It didn't have any like big, it didn't have a lot of like detail on what the thing looked like or or anything like that. And the cast, when they were filming it, they had no idea really how the scene was going to play out. Uh, And this was intentional. Like Scott wanted genuine terrified reactions from the cast. So they, they kind of got John Hurt set up separately. Everyone else was uh, out of the room. They were away from the set. They put him in like an artificial chest. Like it's an effect that we've seen before, like on our Tom Savini series with the zombie movies, you know, where you've got an artificial chest and the real head and shoulders coming out. Mm. So they mm-hmm. did that. And then the, then they bring the cast in. Uh, the cast doesn't know what's going on. They don't know how the scene's going to play out. Cause again, the script is pretty vague about it. And this, the, the way the cast describes it is that they walk onto the set and John Hurt's laying there, you know, with his, out of, sticking out of the table and the whole crew is in raincoats. <laughs> Everyone's wearing raincoats. And then there's this horrible smell of formaldehyde in the in the in the room. We mentioned this earlier, maybe on our last, I think it was last week's episode. And instead of using prosthetic effects, because uh, Scott was worried they would look too fake, because again, this is late seventies. You know, prosthetic effects aren't as advanced as they are now. Uh, they were using organs from a butcher shop. So I think Todd, you mentioned you know the, the face hugger later on when they when they yeah. examine it and yeah, those were oysters. Well, they did that in for like the innards for John hurt uh, for the inside of the egg, oh. you know, the egg, when the, the face burst or uh, the, the face hugger hits him, that was the inside of the egg was like a uh, cow's stomach and tripe. Yeah. It was the, the lining of it. They called it the uh, stitching or something like that. The tri- I tripe is stomach is stomach lining. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then what came up out of the, thing and hit him in the face was like an intestine it was a sheep's intestine yeah yeah so that the little thing that jumps out and they 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 used like an air cannon just basically shoot it out and then slowed it down and reversed it and uh so that you could because it was 
too fast when they originally filmed it. Wow. But yeah, so they're using, you know, obviously there are prosthetics of the face hugger itself is like something they built, but they're using real organs and stuff. So they go into this room where they're using that for John Hurt's innards and it just stinks because they've kept the stuff in formaldehyde and it's just, it's just organ meat from the right. local butcher in, in London. So they start filming it. Again, the cast has no idea what's going on. Uh, the alien starts to come out. You, you, you can, and you can watch this footage, this behind-the-scenes footage. Uh, but the alien starts to come out, but it won't burst through the shirt. They can't get it to go through the shirt, so it's just like blood spatter. Wow. And then they tried it again. And when it does burst out, like nobody in the cast was really ready for it. And so you, <laughs> the, the look you see on their faces of them just being shocked and terrified is real. That's real shock. That's what Scott wanted. He wanted a true reaction from them. Uh, and Veronica Cartwright, like she actually got like a spray of blood hit her in the face and she actually like fainted. She passed out from the shock of it. Jeez. And her reaction is my favorite. I mean, the look on her face when that happens in the film is like, you can tell like she is truly like terrified for a moment. <laughs> she says like they went in there that she was like, there, there's, we'll do it like a quick take. There's like four cameras. We'll just get this done. You'll probably get a little blood on you. She was like, we didn't even know what was happening. And she's like, they had a fucking jet pointed at my face. <laughs> <laughs> just have, and Harry Dean Stan is like there. And, and he says this, and I can believe 100% it's true because I imagine Harry Dean Stanton just being high as fuck or something on set. He's just like, I thought it was real. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, just real. <laughs> <laughs> The movie filmed on three principal sets. Uh, there, there was the surface of the alien planetoid, the interiors of the Nostromo, and then the derelict spacecraft. And they created these 124th scale miniatures of the planetoid surface and the derelict spacecraft. Those were created by the art director, uh, Les Dilly, based on H.R. Giger's designs. And then the, the art director would scale them up to be built out of wood and fiberglass on set. And then they brought in like tons of sand and plaster and fiberglass and rock and gravel into the studio. Because remember, this is at Shepard and Studios, not on any kind of location, uh, to create the planetoid's desert surface. That Giger design for the ship was uh, from Necronomicon. Uh, Scott says they found that in in Necronomicon. He was like, he was like sitting on the set. Like, the like crescent moon shape. Yeah, shape. yeah. He says he, he was just thumbing through and there was like a picture in there that was like an instrument, like a musical instrument. Guy Giger had drawn and he just saw it as the ship. So like took it, you know, in to, to get it mocked up and everything. I, I love to, by the way, just, I, just the idea of like when he's shooting that, he thought that the model that they made wouldn't hold up. And this is, you know, since... We're all about this crafty outside the box thinking like we were on Dark Star. I thought this was amazing. He said the model's not going to hold up to uh, criticism like on, on the look of it. So he said that he took a handheld camera, like just a standard handheld camera and filmed the model like up close and like tried to make it wobbly and that sort of thing. And then he took that it was shooting into the monitor and then he filmed the yeah. monitor of him like filming the model yeah, yeah. so that he could get the look of like through the helmets. It's you know, a cool like, shot. Yeah, uh, I know. It, I just thought that was amazing. I was like, he yeah. was like that, that I it just hearing him talk about that. I was like, that's fucking fantastic. I would never think of shit like that. I guess yeah. that's why he's Ridley Scott and I'm not. And but, you're Gary Horn. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it's just no. That, I do. I really stuff. do love that shot. I've I have always loved that shot where it looks like you're looking at a television monitor, like footage of that. It just there's something about it that feels very like found footagey. You know? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, very much. That I think is just really cool. You know, and and also with they they built they did build like part of the exterior of the Nostromo like full size. They built like the the like feet that it like lands on. Mm. And when they were filming it, uh, Ridley Scott was not sure that it looked big enough. So we actually got his son and the son of the cinematographer to dress up in small spacesuits, like their size spacesuits. So that when he, when you see the astronauts outside on the planet's surface, it's actually the children because he wanted them to look smaller next to this giant thing. Same thing happens later on in the space jockey room. He did the same thing because he wanted the room to look bigger than it actually was. So he filmed children in their spacesuits. Well, J.J. Uh, Abrams did the same thing in uh, Star Trek in 2009. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. He shot, uh, he had uh, Kirk running away from a uh, big alien chasing him on the snow. And uh, when you see him from the back, it's, it's a kid. Huh. Yeah. There's your Star Trek reference. I'm sorry. I don't want to get into a discussion on Star Trek. I was about to ask a question about it. I was like, that'll take another five Uh, minutes. No, no, yeah. yeah, No. (laughs) He gets paid to the planet, uh, basically. (laughs) It's where he meets Scotty. But no, I mean, uh, Spielberg does, you know, he he uses a little person in the shark cage, like a smaller shark cage with a little person in it with the. Well, that's because they were using a normal shark and not a 2,000 pound uh, great white in that scene. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 But yes, yeah, same, same concept. So eventually Giger himself would also be a fixture on the set. He was no longer content to just simply mail in images of his artwork and get him stopped at customs at LAX uh, or in London at this point. He, <laughs> right. he actually showed up. They had him working on set. He physically sculpted and painted sets for the film, like the space jockey room. Uh, he airbrushed the space, he carved and airbrushed the space jockey himself and airbrushed by hand that entire room himself. So essentially that set was one giant piece of Giger artwork created nice. by him, which is crazy. Yeah. It's insane to think about. Did it, it, uh, any of the pieces of the set survive? I doubt it. They were like fiberglass and stuff. So I don't know that they would have held up. I'm sad. not really sure yeah. though. Yeah, they but, should be in a in a museum somewhere yeah, in the Smithsonian. Yeah. <laughs> to 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 his credit, to to you know, like for what hopefully Scott watched the 2003 commentary for the film. He O'Bannon does in there talk about one of the great parts about it, and you kind of hinted at this earlier was that the atmosphere that Scott was creating. Uh, O'Bannon talks about like this guy's a master at that. And he says a horror movie without atmosphere isn't pleasing to watch. And Ridley Scott is a master of atmosphere. And uh, yeah. he says he talks he talks about in there that he remembers seeing Scott walking around the set. Uh, he had people with incense burners like going off uh, because he wanted to fill the area with a fog. And yeah. uh, and just to make the thick air, he said that Scott was like walking around himself with a piece of cardboard, like fanning it, you know, to try to make the room thick. And they said he didn't even understand what he was doing at the time. But then Scott started like clipping little lights in certain areas uh, and then filtering it with like this blue gray thing that he would put in in front of it. And he said that the result was it was like the color of a Giger painting. He's like, he he just, he thought it was magnificent that he just would have never thought of that stuff himself. Ridley Scott is 
you know, like I said, I, I, I'm hit or miss on some of his films, but I think he is an incredible visual stylist. Uh, I've always thought that. And, and I think this is, I mean, incredible work that he's doing here because he just knew how to do it. And, and the thing is, the he shot most of this movie. I mean, his director of photography on this is Derek Van Lint, who uh, is, is the credited cinematographer on this. But truly, like Ridley Scott, was handling the camera himself for a lot of this film. Uh, there were some like a lot of you know, static shots, close up things like that that Van Lint would shoot, but but Ridley Scott he wanted this kind of handheld look to a lot of the movie, which I think adds another level of kind of reality to it. There's oh, yeah. a lot of handheld camera work in this, and in those scenes, like Ridley Scott's got the camera on his shoulder. He's the one physically shooting that, even though he's not the credited director of photography. He was essentially a code director of photography because he's he's shooting it all himself and he's very meticulous about how things look and i think adding that adding that bit of like fog that bit of haze to the set adds a lot to it because when you see light shine through it it has a certain effect to it but it also kind of covers up the limitations of some of the sets because this movie was it was 10 million dollars it started out as like 4.2 or something like that and then ridley scott who makes these meticulous uh storyboards he, he drew out storyboards for the entire film. And when he showed those to executives at 20th Century Fox, they doubled his budget because wow. uh, they, they really saw how, how much potential this had. But even so, $10 million for a space set movie, even in 1979, was fairly low budget. I mean, it was a, it was a you know, significant budget for what they were trying to do, but it wasn't like this was, this wasn't Star Wars. You know, and they were building sets out of like pieces of, you know, airplanes and things like that and tubing. And they, they were assembling this out of junk, essentially, and trying to make it look like something else. Yeah. And it's I don't know. I think it's really cool the way that they got around that. And I, and I think it adds a lot of texture to the movie. Oh, for uh, sure. Then, you know, Gary mentioned earlier how they, they uh, Ron Cobb, I guess, his original design of the interior of the spaceship was more like straight lines and stuff. They turned it into curving and uh, curving corridors, a lot of corners and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, when they built that set, it was all one piece. It was like you walked into these tunnels and you got lost. You could get lost in there. Cause it's all like those, those, cor- it's not like they're filming the same corner over and over. Like they f- built the interior of the spaceship. Jeez. So when, so actors would talk about like going in, they would get turned around and get lost in there. Uh, when, when you walked into that set, you were there and there was no, there was like no way out. It was claustrophobic. Oh boy. <laughs> talk about creating an atmosphere. Yeah. You know, another person that was uh, on the set there that he, he wasn't, I think he was uncredited. I'm pretty sure, but Scott brought in Anton first who ends up doing like production design on Batman 89 and uh full metal jacket. Mm, and yeah. uh, he was, he was on the set of alien, like helping out his big creation was the whole egg layer for, oh, wow. for that area. Like he, nice. he created that. And uh, the, like the, what they, he and Scott envisioned that like the placenta over the eggs was that layer of fog and light that you see that like uh hurt falls through mm, at, at one yeah. point. He's like looking down through uh, they did that because like the who was 
working on a uh, stage show next door. Yeah, yeah. They borrowed their lasers. <laughs> so they borrowed their lasers. <laughs> nice. And came through. That was Anton first, like went and got them and brought them over. They set that up. And uh, yeah, that was just uh, just cool. Man, it's so cool. Like even seeing this stuff, like for instance, with the eggs and weird things you would not notice. Like for instance, like when Hurt disturbs the egg the first time, if you look at it and you go back and see it, I've seen this movie like five times in the past week, but the water is going upwards yep. on the egg. Like yep. the droplets are going up towards yeah. the opening. It's because the egg's actually hanging upside down technically, but it's just to, to make it eerie and weird. weird. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yep. Just to make it a little extra weird. And inside it's like a fiberglass egg, but when you see like the inside, it like lights up when he's shining on it. You can see the uh, face hugger in there. That's Ridley Scott's hand inside of it with a rubber glove, like moving his yeah, hand they, around. Well, they, that was a pickup shot after production that they decided they wanted to show the egg and they built this clear fiberglass egg and they, and Ridley Scott just put on like rubber gloves and was, flapping them back and forth, you know, to make it look like that. But you would, and even knowing that when I watched that scene in the movie, it, I can't, it doesn't look like hands. You, I can't yeah. Tell. You can't tell. Yeah. No. And uh, he says uh, also the egg opening was hydraulic and, and made with like metal and tension and like it opened up. He's like, but seriously, he's like, that was, that would take your fucking hand off. Yeah, he's like it was. like that was legit. <laughs> when Giger was designing those eggs, he originally had it as just like a single opening and it looked like a like a vagina. And they're like, uh, "You can't, we can't do that. <laughs> like, we got to show this place. Uh, we got to show this in places where, like, Catholic countries, they're not going to let us show this if if it's just a vagina opening." And he's probably thinking, well, what about the giant dick on the head of the main monster of the movie? But what he ended up doing is he he turned it into a cross. So it's a, so it's basically a cross shaped vagina on top of the eggs. And he perp Giger, according to Giger, he says that he purposely did that. He's like, well, now it's double obscene. <laughs> well, no, no. But I, I was going to say, I mean, 100 percent. If you the more you hear Ridley Scott talk about this movie, he's fucking like he's just as much of a perv like he he tried he tried his hardest he talks about it he tried his hardest to get everybody naked in the opening scene like they were gonna wake up and be everybody's butt ass <laughs> naked and then like they were like no way can't do that then he's like well at least everybody's topless and they're like no come on like <laughs> he's like we'll, we'll take their nipples <laughs> they're like they've got to have shirts on we're losing like five countries you don't put fucking shirts on these people and so it's just like constant and, and like he he's straight up i mean he straight up talks about with ash and like his interaction with uh ripley like where he pins her down and like shoves the magazine in her mouth he's just like he's getting off on this this is him yeah. like he's just like He's he's always wanted to shove something in her mouth and like he just doesn't have the tool so he's gonna use this magazine and that that's mm -hmm. really Scott talking so like he's I don't know I saw I saw articles where people like tried to say like when Ash blew up you know it's all white and <laughs> all yeah. the white liquid coming out of him <laughs> yeah. that's intentional and I don't know I after think it is seeing, intentional I was about to say after seeing many interviews with Ridley Scott I'm like yeah probably like yeah. that just seems like Ridley <laughs> Scott he's the one hinting at lesbian relationships between Cartwright and uh, Sigourney Weaver. And like, he also wanted to film the sex scene with Dallas and like, Oh, Scott, you're a horde ball too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that scene with Ash, like the way they shot that is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's kind of like, it's fun. It's kind of like a lo-fi, you know, we, we mentioned it earlier, but 
the inside of his like Android, the parts you see on the table really was just like fiberglass, like like little marbles and pieces of like fiber optic and stuff like that. It's nothing like super fancy. And then they just covered it in like white milk, you know? I mean, there is an animatronic ash that you see in like one shot, but it's kind of as Ridley Scott would put it. What's he, he calls it a little, um, dodgy that's the word that he calls it a little dodgy same thing when you see the ash without the head that the arms are kind of flapping it's like yeah the arms are a little dodgy but uh, but it, it works i mean and and the effect is very simple of course ian holmes head is through a table and they put the the skin flaps where his neck is and then change his voice it's it's, it's simple but it's so so effective yeah. and it's just yeah it really is very his whole his whole reveal i think is very well done where you just see that trickle of the milk on yeah. his forehead coming down. And you're, and as an audience member, if you've never seen the movie before, you're like, what the, what the fuck is going on? What, what's coming down off his head? And it's not until uh, I think it's Yafet Koto uh, Parker that hits him in the head yep. and his head comes off, you know, and that you realize, Oh shit. Like, you know, there's nothing at all that indicates that he's a robot before that. But once that happens, it, it really pulls the rug out from under the audience. And mm-hmm. of course, that would become a staple in the entire franchise later on. Well, it's interesting, too. Like, I mean, I think I mentioned it for, for the last episode, but just that even with that, just the outside the box thinking that Scott was like, we're not going to be able to out technology this. Like, what's a what's a robot look like? What's a cyborg, you know, the, the humanoid thing look like inside and he's just like well we just fill it with literal like caviar i think is in there too yeah. and stuff like that and so he's just like we fill it all with this and then you're just like well this is more technologically advanced than anything we would understand it's so, so far advanced that we wouldn't recognize it as technology yeah it just doesn't even look <laughs> yeah. you know we can't explain that so yeah and then I that works that. better a- than them trying to do like circuits and wires right. and stuff i agree i agree and it, it was not an easy you know set to be on you've got these spacesuits like that they were wearing they were huge and thick and bulky and they initially had no venting in them i mean you think dan o'bannon could have been like hey we kind of ran into this issue on dark star <laughs> but you gotta <laughs> let your actors breathe when they're wearing spaceships so they would be just be breathing in their own carbon dioxide and they actually had to keep nurses on hand with oxygen tanks in case the actors were to pass out. Same thing happened with the kids when they had the kids in the little tiny spacesuits. the kids were almost passing out until they invented, like they inserted like a venting system into the spacesuits. Wow. So not an easy film to, to, you know, to work on. They figured out the ventilation with the kids. Yeah. Yeah. They figured it out. (laughs) (laughs) The film was edited by Terry. What? I said, then it mattered more. (laughs) <laughs> so the film was edited by terry rollins terry rollins had been scott's uh editor on the duelist and he and scott intentionally left the pace kind of slow in order to build suspense for the scary scenes and and i i mean i think that's essential to the film's success you know i, I don't think this is a slow movie in that it's boring at all there's nothing boring about this movie but i think that it, it is methodically paced to where the suspense builds as the movie goes it gets it gets more and more intense as it goes until the by the final act the tension is just unbearable you know and i think part of that is also that scott shows us very little of the final alien form i think that is a a a very good decision on his part because early in the film you know you see 
the face hugger and you see the chest burster in very bright light, harsh, bright lighting. You get a really good look at both of them. And that's kind of a tease because you think that Scott's going to do that with the, the final form with the, the, what would later be known as the xenomorph. You think he's going to show us that in full light or, you know, a good shot of it. And he never does. He never gives us a really good shot of the final alien. And by doing that, I think Scott keeps the audience wondering. He keeps us in suspense. He knows that our imagination is going to scare us more than anything he could show us. Uh, because again, this movie shares a lot of DNA with Lovecraft, that fear of the unknown, you know, that unknowable mm. evil. Oh, yeah. And I think by not showing the alien that much, it it really plays into the uh, the psychology of the audience. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and from a production standpoint, it's probably a little bit better because I mean, didn't Spielberg do that with Jaws? Like, yeah, the, Spielberg I mean, did with Jaws I mean, some of, of it, some of it was out of necessity, but, <laughs> but yeah, but, but, but I yes, mean, it, it worked very up, well. But it worked, worked very it. well. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the original assembly cut for Alien was over three hours long. It was edited down to a final cut of just under two hours. One scene that was cut, Dallas and Brett are discovered by Ripley as she's about to escape the Nostromo. Uh, They're thought to be dead, but they've actually been cocooned by the alien. So O'Bannon had actually included this scene in his screenplay to indicate that Brett was becoming an alien egg, actually growing like a new face hugger inside of them. Then Dallas was going to be implanted by the resulting face hugger to grow a whole new alien. And the scene was cut out for a couple of reasons. One, Scott was unhappy with the effects. He, he didn't think they would look realistic enough, but also because it slowed down the pace of the finale. Uh, Tom Skerritt would later say, he said, quote, the picture had to have that pace. Her trying to get the hell out of there. We're all rooting for her to get out of there. And for her to slow up and have a conversation with Dallas was not appropriate, which mm-hmm. I, I agree with because at that point in the film, you want her to keep moving. But yeah, a shortened version of that scene was reinserted into Ridley Scott's 2003 director's cut. So let's talk about the director's cut for a second. Because Gary, did you watch this version? I know we, yeah. we talked about it. You watched the director's cut? You watched both yeah, versions. I watched both versions, yeah. So the director's cut is not really a director's cut. So in 2003, 20th Century Fox was preparing the Alien Quadrilogy DVD box set. And they wanted to include alternate versions of all four films, director's cuts or alternate cuts of all four films. This is where the famous assembly cut of David Fincher's Alien 3 comes from. So they asked Ridley Scott to remaster Alien and create a director's cut. Now, there's no indication that the theatrical cut of Alien was not Ridley Scott's preferred version. That essentially was his director's cut. But even, even Scott says that the version that was on in this Alien Quadrilogy box set was just called a director's cut for marketing purposes because that was that's what was being done in the early 2000s. You had all these director's cuts and special editions coming out, and that was a selling point to a lot of people. So studios kept doing it even when this was not necessarily the preferred version of the film by the directors. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's you know, like you see this a lot of times, even now, like you said, uh, but really Scott straight up, like in the box set, multiple times, even in the accompanying booklets, the commentary, uh, I believe even in the intro to the, the special edition or the director's cut, that he says there is no director's cut of this movie. Uh, he was happy with the film as it was. He got to do yeah. what he wanted to do. Uh he said by 2003, there were things that, you know, after you've seen the movie for a quarter of a century, there's things you could tweak. Sure. Uh, 
there had been seeds that people had seen on deleted seeds that fans had requested be added back in. And so he thought there were ways he could modify those and get them back in there. And so he decided to do it just to work with it, you know? But, yeah. I mean, it's an alternate version of the movie. It's got alternate scenes. It actually, it's actually like a minute shorter, I think than the theatrical cut, but uh, it, it gave chan- fans a chance to see some material that they had not seen before reinserted into the film and even though it's not necessarily like the fi- Ridley Scott's like final version of the film, but his version of the film is the one that came out in theaters in 1979, uh, as opposed to something like Blade Runner, where that's got like four different versions. And the version that came out in theaters was definitely not Ridley Scott's version. Or uh, even I actually uh, saw I, I've that. been watching through them and like Aliens. I mean, even that one, the director's cut of Aliens is, I think, James Cameron's preferred version of Aliens. Yeah like uh the sequel just he he thought they you know the the tendency was to cut movies down and he had wanted his version to be longer and they had made you know argued with him to trim it down so even in that one it is the preferred version but in alien it's ridley scott's pretty pretty straightforward about there there was he was he had no changes he wanted to make yeah i actually saw the um the the director's cut on the big screen it came out on halloween of 2003 they, they re before the dvd box set came out they actually re-released it to theaters and i had a chance to see it. it's actually the first and only time i've been able to see alien on the big screen so i've actually oh never seen the original theatrical cut on the big screen which i would love to do that's cool well i my i watched the original cut i actually have the big the big box set and a friend of mine yeah that's the one a, we're talking about the quadrilogy yeah i've got the quadrilogy yeah. box set and a friend of mine has an office space uh at a local mill here and a big white wall so he brought a projector and threw it up on the wall so we were watching it in probably 10 or 12 feet wide and nice it you know it's not in the theater but pretty close and it was a lot of it, we had a, right now yeah <laughs> and we had a lot of fun that was it was a really great uh because i don't think I think one of our friends that we were with hadn't ever seen that before. So, so it was, it was a fun viewing experience. We had a good time. The film was released on May 25th, 1979. It was a box office hit broke records left and right. uh, Eventually grossing $143 million worldwide. Uh, And, but critical reception was actually initially mixed, believe it or not. Uh, At the time, a lot of critics weren't very kind to sci-fi movies and this was no exception. But of course, now it's considered one of the greatest sci-fi movies ever made, one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Uh, even critics who gave it mixed or negative reviews upon its original release, guys like Leonard Malton and, and Roger Ebert, later came to reassess it and recognize its greatness. I think Roger Ebert even did one of his great movies uh, columns on Alien later on. Wow. But not everyone has probably reassessed this movie and, and seen it for the incredible piece of filmmaking that it is. And I'm willing to bet if you were to, uh, you know, scour the internet, the deepest, darkest corners of the internet, you might find some people who have some unkind things to say about alien. My first one that I read across was Polly Kale's review of it. And, uh, wait, (laughs) (laughs) no, Polly Kale was very nice. I just thought it was interesting. I thought this would be fun to throw in here. She says, uh, a quote from her review is it reached out, grabbed you, squeezed your stomach. It's more gripping than entertaining, but a lot of people didn't mind. They thought it was terrific because at least they'd felt something they'd been brutalized. Wow. uh, I thought that was, uh, 
an interesting thing from Pauline Kale. But yeah, there's some people that uh, apparently were not huge fans of Alien and uh, decided they needed to get online and type something up real quick because, <laughs> as it turns out, with most people on the internet, somebody needs a nap. <laughs> Uh, this first review is, I don't, I don't know. I can catch the name. That's one out of five stars. They said, uh, subject is I'd rather not. And, uh, <laughs> and the review is, wow. What was all the hubbub about this movie? No, thanks. That's it. <laughs> that's the review. That's their assessment. And uh. I just found it fun. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Uh, this is from Zombageddon. One star. Completely overrated. I felt nothing for these characters. The acting was played bad, and they kept making one bad alien movie after another with the exact same redundant plot line. I really hope they don't make any more alien movies. It's becoming an awful franchise like Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm glad they went in a new direction with Prometheus, which is a much better film than all of the alien movies combined. (laughs) That was for Justin. Yeah, I was going to say, Justin, you doing okay, buddy? Uh, my head hurts. Uh, I saw that was one. Was that a real like, one? Was that a real review? That's 100% a real review, and I saw it and was like, that's going in. That's oh, going God. in. Prometheus is a better movie than all of the alien movies combined. Uh, Let's get that cross-stitched on something. And get <laughs> oh, man. Uh, let's see. This is from St. Just. So I'm going to assume this is Justin Bishop. St. Justin. <laughs> yeah. uh, what do people see in this film is the title of this review. And immediately, that's the first line of the review. What do people see in this film? I am not one for horror films, though I do like this alien stuff. Nothing happens in this film. Nothing. We spent most of the time waiting and waiting for something to happen. The movie could have been cut to half an hour easy. There is a saying that says that fear is being scared of the unknown, something that the X-Files has done really well. Unfortunately, this film has tried to do this too, and it's gone too far. Rather than waiting for something to happen while on the edge of our seats, we wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. We barely get to see the alien, and the special effects are pretty poor. Sure, it was a long time ago, so we can't expect too much, but look at Star Wars, which came around came out around the same time. They were much better than Alien, and Lucas had half the money. Alien is simply a boring movie that deserves no credit. Whoa. That guy thinks that Star Wars was made for $5 million? Yeah. yeah I think well. so. <laughs> this is from uh, Maz. Uh, who says, fear in its purest form. One star. Really, Scott has created only the truest form of fear in the movie history. This film shows what, if you are in space, alone, no one can hear you, no one can save you. You are stuck with a monster tormenting you, knowing that you have no chance. It's hard to know that there is someone out for your blood, but for it to possibly be in the next room with nowhere else for you to go, you can make one wrong move, resulting in your... Yours and possibly your crew's death. How would you like that? That's why this remains only one of the scariest sci-fi movies ever made. Because in space, no one can hear you scream. That's a good review. That's a positive review. It felt like a Todd review. (laughs) 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 Because it 100% is a one-star review. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they gave it yeah, one star. That's a very positive. Said that. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing, I was I, the whole time I'm listening, going, 
Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, boy. Yeah. Right. Let's start. Yeah, okay. uh, <laughs> all right. Real quick, Lids. This is from Harry Plinkett. It says, Twisted. Scott is a lousy director. Great visual artist, but not good at directing. Giger is a degenerate who painted monsters and hellish images all his life. And the whole horror genre is, by and large, a pit of degeneracy. This film is an effective horror and does impress visually in many ways. It also has a memorable soundtrack. But at the end of the day, it is just nasty. And I am sick and tired of nasty imagery poisoning my mind. Shove it in the toilet. Wow. <laughs> that is Harry Plinkett. And um, finally. <laughs> did it have a memorable soundtrack? I mean, I thought I the a, score was good. I, I mean, it was a score, but I, I wouldn't say it was. I mean, there were no like needle drops. Yeah. No, okay. Like, All right. I was, it's an Arizona I at any of, point. Did I miss something? Uh, and this final review had no name on it, but. It is one out of five stars. It says, space robots think they're above space law and Sigourney Weaver has mother issues. Uh, what? <laughs> That's the whole review? That's the review. Wow. And that has been, somebody needs a nap. Wow. It sure has. <laughs> well, regardless of what these folks think, I, I think Alien is, in my opinion, one of the few like perfect movies. Like this, everything about this movie every element it's one of the few times where everything like comes together and just works well together like perfectly you've got O'Bannon's story it's it's ingenious in its simplicity i think hill walter hill i mean i know O'Bannon likes to paint him as the bad guy but i think him punching up the dialogue gives the film like a realness and a naturalness that's lacking in a lot of sci-fi movies especially ones that were released before this mm. and O'Bannon said that uh he had a conversation with hill where hill said uh, that he thought the whole point of this movie is evil corporations. They created this whole situation. Had they not been greedy and needed to be involved in everything, they would not have interfered and like found the alien, blah, 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 blah. Which side note, I think is a possible, uh, I mean, it's, it's a thing in this movie. I mean, um, it's the thing that the entire rest of the franchise <laughs> is completely based on. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. If they left well enough alone, O'Bannon, yeah. to his credit, giving props to Walter Hill, said he did say to Hill, you're absolutely right. And you can imagine how I feel now butting up against a producer who thinks he's a writer. Wow. <laughs> 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 Woo. Man, wow. Well, anyway, you've also got you know Ridley Scott's visual artistry, which elevates the movie above its kind of intended b-movie origins mm. and then of course the design from hr uh, giger which is completely iconic and one of the all-time great movie monsters i think if any one of these elements hadn't been there it wouldn't be the same movie even if like hill had not come in and rewritten O'Bannon's script this it would not be the movie that we got this is like lightning in a bottle you know this is yeah. every single element coming together if someone else had directed it if they'd have brought in a different writer to rewrite O'Bannon's script if they'd have brought in if, if the studio had refused to use hr giger's designs if any of these things had not been there alien as we know it would not be i think the iconic movie that it is but it's it's just one of those few times where every single element works in the film's favor the cast the music the visuals the story every single thing works perfectly in sync for the collaborative effort of the thing. I mean, it's all these people coming together that are so talented, that are so, so great at what they do. 
just it's like you it's like you said i mean it's, it's lightning in a bottle it's it's just just from the simplest moments to the greatest moments of the movie it's just like everybody the thought that was put into all of it uh just i don't know man i i think back on uh, there, there's so many fun stories for this movie we can't get to everything but just uh like the idea that like O'Bannon, another thing he pitched to Cobb and, and Scott during the time was like the way that it, the seats wobbled when they landed the ship. Like just that little detail, I think is really cool. He's like, I was on a plane and I'm landing and he's I'm like, the turbulence hits you and this plane feels like it's going to fucking fall apart. And he's like, and then I'm watching like, we're doing Alien and I'm thinking of like, every space movie just has the fucking ship just like land, like doop there you are you're there everything's fine and i'm like nah man like what what if it's not that way what if you're not sure that every time you take a landing on some weird planet that maybe your whole fucking ship's gonna fall apart yeah, <laughs> right he's <laughs> like so there, there's like that whole thing and uh i don't know scott going into detail about the the title sequences like you had the graphic designers that worked on the posters and the press work and stuff just like that title sequence that I think is still one of the most epic title sequences that's mm-hmm. ever happened. Just like mm-hmm. that it's like, he's weird. It almost starts off as like hieroglyphs and stuff. Yeah. And that was, yeah, that was the idea was that it was to be there. Cause Scott had, you know, say what you will about the movies that have come out since, but Scott had these ideas back at this movie of like what this all was, where mm. are these aliens from those questions, you know, like uh, yeah. what's the space jockey? What's this? Where does it come from? He wanted to explore all that, you know, it wasn't, I don't know, you know, you can say it's good or bad, but he, the guy was interested in that stuff. Day one, he mm. was. And, and so the hieroglyphs for him hinted that there was like this civilization before, <laughs> like, yeah, you I know, mean, like, I- I like the idea of like throwing those hints in there, but I think that they made the right decision in not trying to explore that too much in this movie, you know, because of course th- this movie, you know, as we all know, it produced a lot of sequels and spinoffs and whatnot. And we'll discuss James Cameron's aliens at some point down the road. Uh, and it's definitely the best of the sequels, I think, but uh, the, the rest of which range from just okay to downright terrible. But one of the things that the sequels do, including Cameron's, is they give us a lot more info about the aliens, about their origins, about their life cycle. But here, Scott and O'Bannon and Shusette, they they knew that the less info that they gave, the better. Uh, it makes the alien scarier because we know so little about it. And this mm-hmm. is kind of the love. This is the Lovecraft angle again. You know, it's just what we can imagine is so much scarier than what they could give us. That's why I think some of the sequels don't work. That's why I think Prometheus and alien covenant don't work is because they're just, they're taking away the mystery and, and therefore taking away what makes the alien so scary. Well, see, but back to that review where it talks about like nothing happens, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I mean, the alien and the face hugger each probably get about four minutes of screen time. I think I saw somewhere. So, you know, that's all you get out of them. But I mean, Scott responds to criticism like of of nothing happening for like the alien doesn't show up for like an hour into the movie. And <laughs> yeah. uh and Scott responds to that with like, that's the point. Nothing happens for like 45 minutes because I want you to see the world that these workers function in. 
this is it's a, like a it's a mining ship or refinery or some kind of freighter and they're just waking up for some reason and their day-to-day is fucking nothing and you know it's just standard day-to-day work practice that's why it's so fucked up when all of a sudden there's a monster on the ship right right (laughs) so why they might be surprised by that yeah, so let's talk a minute. Well, we've already gotten, I think we've got a good idea of where Todd stands on this one, but sure. let's hear Todd's take. Uh, you know, I, I hesitate to call any movie perfect, but if you are going to, if you are going to use that, this is a good one to use it on. I mean, I think, I mean, we've already described certain uh, aspects of the movie as iconic. I think, honestly, I think the movie as a whole is iconic. It's just everything from from everything Gary just said, you know, from the title sequences to uh, the feel of the sets, to the casting, to the prosthetics, to the design, everything. It was it's one of those rare moments where the report card on this is nothing but A pluses. And, um, I do, I, I was, cons- cause it's been a while since I've sat and watched this one. Um, I'm a big fan of the second one and it does tend to watch a little more like an action movie and, oh, definitely, yeah. and, and we'll get into that later. I'm sure. But I recall this one being a little bit, uh, I don't, I don't want to call it slow, but more deliberately paced. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering if this would have the same punch you know this time around and i was just i was sucked in i was from the opening from the first frame i was sucked in immediately and in fact i think at one point uh the my wife and the other couple we were watching with uh i think a few uh sentences of discussion were had i was completely engrossed in what was going on i was just uh you know every 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 performance every turn uh, every glance from every member of the cast, every drip of KY coming off of that, <laughs> off of that alien, uh, just yeah, I really, I really dug it. I mean, I'm a sci-fi guy anyway, but this is such an interesting. Oh, you're a horror guy. <laughs> Hold on, <laughs> I'm a big sci-fi guy anyway, but this is such an interesting exploration in a particular vein of the everyman horror sci-fi like the venn diagram on this thing is really fascinating and it's just so good i I really enjoyed it and it makes me want to you know when we're done recording go watch the other the other three (laughs) yeah i watched all four of the originals uh, a couple months ago actually i just got on a kick Mm. and watched them all i like them all to varying degrees of those those first four um Alien 3 being my least favorite. I actually like I actually am in the minority of liking Alien Resurrection more than Alien 3. Oh. Uh, I I like Alien Resurrection. I think it's, it's silly and fun. <laughs> but uh but the the through line through all of those of course is Sigourney Weaver. And here this is when you watch Sigourney Weaver in this one you're seeing a movie star being born. Like it's not often that you can point to a movie and go this is where that person became a movie star. And yeah. this is it. I mean Ripley is one of the great screen heroes, action hero, horror heroes, whatever you want to call it. One of the the first female action heroes. And I'm not sure that 
how much intention there was there for because obviously this was not written as a woman initially but the way the character is regardless of how it's written by casting Sigourney Weaver in the role it kind of becomes a, a feminist film and I have to think that Ridley Scott at least was doing that intentionally mm. uh, because if you read the script or you you watch the movie the men on the Nostromo are pretty fucking useless like they they just make a series of bad decisions uh had they listened to Ripley most of them would have probably been okay maybe not Kane but the rest of them probably would have been okay uh, mm-hmm. if they had just listened to Ripley when she tried to keep them off the ship when they, she tried to keep them from bringing this thing on the ship it would have been a much more boring movie but everyone would have lived you know to jump ahead to something that we normally do and i, I the reason i want to do this is just because i I want to get this out there uh, before I forget about it. I actually just finished reading their uh, William Gibson's unproduced script for alien three was given over to IDW some years ago and turned into a, a mini series, a graphic or uh, graphic novel. And I just finished reading it. And if you, if you dig the first one, watch the second one and then go read uh william gibson's aliens three it is okay it is a comic it is a comic it's only it's only five or six issues uh, but i mean you can find it on comiXology It, it is worth a read in light of the first two because this was written as a direct response a direct continuation of alien and aliens so If you're not a fan of Aliens Three as it as it is on screen, you may want to check out William Gibson's uh, unproduced Aliens Three script by IDW. It's it's worth a read. Okay, cool. Uh, is it on? Is there a, a trade version out yet? Yes, there is a trade version. Uh, that's how I read it. Um, okay. And they, I mean, it's all together, and there's a there's some uh, sketches in the back, so you get a little bit of a bonus content and seeing how they you know put everything together it's 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 worth uh it's worth a couple bucks yeah nice yeah so this movie by the way it passes it passes uh that bechdel test mm. you know what I'm yeah saying? the bechdel test yeah yeah so uh i think even the column that it came from originally allison bechdel wrote like uh dykes to watch out for was her column and that was where it was first proposed. Like the character of the column, like uh, talks about a, a, a movie that treats its female characters as equals. And mm. the rule is three parts uh, has to have at least two female characters who number two, have a conversation with each other. That number three, isn't about one of the male characters uh, in the film. Uh, and so that became the Bechdel test, but the character in the column says that the last movie they remember seeing, uh, that fit that criteria was alien. Uh, so anyway, that, uh, awesome. yeah, so this is, uh, this, this passes that, that test. So just, uh, for props there, uh, also worth mentioning, uh, two things I found interesting. One at the premiere of the movie, uh, re- uh, religious folk were very upset. Uh, there was a big prop of the xenomorph outside and they set fire to it. What? Uh, because they believed it was the work of the devil. <laughs> I think it was Jewish rabbis that did that. Oh, maybe it was Jewish rabbis. Really? Either way. Yeah. That marks successful. That oh. marks a successful film. 
to me. Yeah, when you when you make the the church people angry, yeah. <laughs> you're doing it right. Also, ridiculously, and I I know that we have more familiarity with this, but I didn't realize it even started with Alien. But after the success that Star Wars was having with action figures, Kidder made an Alien toy after this movie yeah. for Christmas of 1979. Um, <laughs> it mean, was like was an 18 inch, through- like alien, like Xenomorph. It didn't have like the crew or any of that stuff, but it was the straight up like Giger Xenomorph design. And uh, it, it was apparently pretty breakable. So parents could blade and it got pulled and it's like, I mean, it goes for like box versions of it go for like a thousand bucks now, but Jeez. yeah, I mean, that was a thing in the 80s and 90s, you know, because uh, I remember buying RoboCop toys and Terminator mm-hmm. 2 toys, and those are definitely not kids' movies, you know? So, <laughs> well, I feel like I read somewhere there. this was like the first where they took like a rated R movie and yeah. <laughs> started making toys out of it. Yeah. I mean, that, which is so weird about this movie because there's like, there's a ton of sexual imagery in this movie, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's that toy is of the, the xenomorph, the alien is again it's a big dick i mean the the giger stuff is pretty obvious but then you've got scenes like the one gary mentioned earlier where ash tries to choke ripley with a rolled up newspaper you know like that's a very uh like psychosexual image there or the fact that ash is covered with a thick white liquid you know <laughs> like right. I, I think that was fully intentional and I mean, hell, the alien itself is covered with lube. The whole movie, the entire movie is covered with KY jelly. Uh, yeah. And then to take it even further, the like sexual imagery of the film, the movie sh- kind of sh- it shows what happens when a man is the victim of non-consensual sex. That's what the face hugger is. I mean, mm. this was actually intentional on Dan O'Bannon's part because he wanted to kind of subvert the the rape revenge movies that were popular at the time stuff like i spit on your grave and they call her one eye movies you know that like we've talked about before he was kind of trying to do something else by showing the man as the victim because again he wanted to make the men in the audience feel very uncomfortable mm-hmm. uh but i, I saw stories course, like during the early development of that that o'bannon and uh Shusset, when they were working on this they, they said they came to like an impasse of like how does the alien get aboard the ship that was like the discussion they were trying to answer and Shusset had come up with the idea uh maybe even as a joke said the alien fucks one of them yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so that eventually they worked that into the facehugger concept and yeah. uh and then yeah, O'Bannon had the idea of like, well, now we try to take the image of like a man getting raped and impregnated, and uh, that 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 so they became very adamant that the first victim has to be a man to like yep. take from that horror cliche of the woman victim, you know. So yep. that that was mm-hmm. very much part of that discussion. Wow. I mean, the Dan O'Bannon, despite the fact that there were a lot of changes made uh, to his script. You can't, that doesn't discount his significant contributions to the film. I mean, again, this was his story. It was his concept. Uh, it was his, it was a screenplay originally. It, it was him that came up with the chestburster scene and Alien would not be Alien without the chestburster scene. And it was him that got H.R. Giger involved and Alien would not be Alien without H.R. Giger's designs. But Dan O'Bannon never really received the credit he deserved. I mean, even critics who liked the film when it came out 
knocked the screenplay for being too thin. I would argue that its simplicity is actually one of its strengths, but at the time people were saying that it was too thinly written, which I think that there's, I think that's completely wrong. I think you get plenty of, I think you get to know the characters very well enough because of the performances and what you get from them to care about whether or not they live or die, uh, which I, I think is what you need out of a horror movie. Even it's so David, crazy to me to think that that's like, I don't know, because I, I was reading this whole article about too, how, you know, like producers, that's not even what they're looking at most of the time. Well, like they have professional readers that like tell them what a movie is sometimes because they get so many screenplays, right? Or at least during this time, this is how it was. And so the, the reason I had found it because it was the readers would generally find like, what's the easy way to explain this movie? And so for this one, it was uh, the elevator pitch. Yeah, like the elevator pitch. But like for this one, it was like the summary for everybody was it's Jaws, but it's face. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. And, and so, David Geiler, he who produced and, and co-wrote the uh, screenplay with Walter Hill, he even diminished O'Bannon's contributions in the press uh, after the film came out. He Even if you watch him in interviews like the Beast Within documentary, which me and Gary, I think, both watched that's on uh, some of the the special features on the blu-ray dvd uh david geiler's kind of he's kind of a dick honestly but he, he really kind of underplays how much o'bannon contributed to this when if it had not been for o'bannon you guys wouldn't have got a script on your desk in the first place that was his script you guys rewrote his script but you wouldn't have had anything to rewrite without him you know so that i think that's a dick move to be honest yeah. and the studio even took O'Bannon and Shusett's name off of the poster at first, but then they were forced to put it on after arbitration with uh, the Writers Guild. They had, but they even tried to take their name off, even though they were given screenplay credit. And the bad press over this dispute and the fact that O'Bannon didn't show up in the film's uh, promotion definitely hurt his career. Like he was not being well associated with this film. And it hurt his career, and it also meant that he wasn't invited back to work on the sequels. Mm. So then, going back to O'Bannon's feud with his old pal John Carpenter, uh, John Carpenter told the press that O'Bannon had just ripped off it, the terror from beyond space. He called Alien stylish, but more repulsive than scary. And O'Bannon then, of course, he bashed Halloween. He said, uh, quote, you can make that in a weekend with some teenagers. It's kind of nifty in a minor key. Halloween is okay. You okay? sons of bitch. Well, you guys, <laughs> oh, it's too late to kiss and make up now, but God, that is that's so wrong. It's a feud. They're feuding. <laughs> oh, I hate it. Uh, so what's ironic here is that those two films though halloween and alien are very similar honestly they're they're both about this relentless killer that sort of represents evil personified they don't have any motivation you know michael myers in the first halloween which I, we will definitely cover on the show one day we covered it on our old show if you want to hear our thoughts on it but we'll cover it in more detail one day but michael myers has no real reason for stalking the girls that he's stalking in the first Halloween movie. He's they're just there. And the same thing with this movie, you know, Kane happens along messes with an egg and he's just in the wrong place at the wrong time, which fucks things for everyone else on the Nostromo. Uh, it's not because they were being hunted or the alien, they have something that the alien wants. It's just what the alien does. The alien kills It's what Michael Myers does. He just kills. So 
it's nature. It's nature. Yeah. It's killing indiscriminately. <laughs> yeah, that's just what they do. So it's it's kind of ironic that they were kind of feuding in the press over these two movies when in reality the movies are very, very similar. <laughs> and very, very good. Both of them. They're both really good. They're both great <laughs> movies. <laughs> so, so it's it's unfortunate that despite creating one of the most iconic screen monsters of all time. Dan O'Bannon never really got his due, even from Alien, the movie that he's most well associated with. He didn't really get to cash in on that, despite the fact that the movie, you know, went, it won an Oscar. <laughs> it, it won an Oscar for Best Special Effects. He didn't even go to the ceremony. Dan O'Bannon didn't go to the Oscar ceremony. It, it, it should have made his career, but instead, once again, Hollywood just kind of ignored him. You know, they just, nobody really gave him his they, they thought he was a hack, I guess. I don't know. I, I mean, maybe someone like Walter Hill had more sway because he had had more produced screenplays. And so when he said that O'Bannon was a shit writer, people believed it and didn't want to give him any more work. So it's, it's not like he was the next hot screenwriter in Hollywood after this, like he should have been. Mm. It's tough because he doesn't ever help himself. It doesn't seem like, but mm. he also no, deserves he so much more credit that he yeah. gets and yeah. so I, I you can see a, some of the things that irritate him yeah yeah so the next film with his name on the credits would come out two years after alien it's a film that reunited him with his alien co-writer ron shuset and that film which is what we're going to discuss next week uh, for part three in this series was 1981's dead and buried uh, it's a fun film it's one that you know a little less well a lot less known than alien but and I haven't seen it in years, but I remember enjoying it. So we'll we'll discover uh, if that still holds the case. If that's still the case, and you know, see if we can find some fun behind the scenes stories for you guys on that one. There's so many more things to discuss with this film. It drives me crazy <laughs> that like all of the stories that like I uh, like the cat, how they got the cat to hiss. They put hit a Doberman or a German Shepherd behind a wall. And so then the cat starts to come towards Harry Dean Stanton and then they pull the wall up and it's a German shepherd and the cat hisses and runs away. And uh, just uh, little stupid stories like that. I just think it's so much fun. And then the ideas that Scott had that he's going to later play out and to much to Justin's chagrin <laughs> play out just about what the space jockey is and uh, what the idea was with the carrier that the eggs are on and, and that whole thing. And, uh, I loved, I don't know. There, it feels like a whole discussion for the alien franchise that like when I was watching the OG original commentary for the film, he's talking about, he always for like day one, it sounds like he thought of the aliens are a weapon and they get dropped into an area and they kind of capture whatever they integrate with whatever they're around. And so do you remember like, was it the late eighties, early nineties where there were like alien toys where you could get like the gorilla alien and yeah. the tiger alien. <laughs> and like, it was yeah. just like the alien. I mean, thing. even in what was it? One of the sequels had alien dogs in it, right? Was that alien three? Oh, maybe that's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's oh, probably yeah. all after alien three. I totally forgot. It's been so long since alien three. We're watching through them right now. The wife and I, and, uh, alien three, always fits right there with Highlander 2 for me as movies I I have seen once but started like 15 times each <laughs> like, are you watching the assembly cut 
I, I think I would have watched the assembly cut. Yeah. Cause I was, yeah. I, I, I was doing this research earlier when I was trying to find out, you know, like what what's cause the fucking anthology thing has, you know, the OG and the special editions of each. So mm-hmm. I'm like, well, which one's better? You know, some, I would recommend the assembly cut on part three. Yeah. So part three, it sounds like Fincher, you know, he dropped out either way, but at least in the assembly cut, they just like tried to piece it together a little bit more to what he had yeah. intended. And, uh, he still doesn't claim any of it. It sounds like, yeah. but, uh, anyway, it's at least more to what he was working on at the time. It's supposedly on Reddit and stuff. People say it's a more coherent story than the original. I think it's a little bit better. It's still not great, but, but it, it's better than theatrical. Um, I think it's time to wrap this up, fellas. Two wait episodes. A minute. Let's on talk one. about one other thing, Gary. <laughs> we have been talking for four hours about this movie, <laughs> but I did want to say that Ridley Scott, by the way, he did fight the studio to get that last act in there. This movie was supposed to end. I, I just found this fascinating. It was supposed to end with her escaping the ship, and that's that's where it ended. And Ridley Scott never felt like that was the end. So he fought for what he called the fourth act, which was Ridley on the shuttle and the aliens still being there. Yeah. Which is a great finale. Honestly, he made a good decision on that part. Yeah, Mm. I agree. And uh, first of all, I don't know what size panties those are. She's wearing, but they don't cover her ass crack. Uh, (laughs) So that's point, point, point a point two is (laughs) point a and point two. (laughs) Point two is he uh I always wondered what was going on with the alien there just like cubbied up in that little hole. Like he's just hanging like, out in the air, hanging out in the uh amongst he's camouflaged. He's trying to camouflage himself. He's very slow until she notices him, and he's still kind of lazy about it. Supposedly the concept was gonna be that the alien is transforming himself into an egg. Like he's going Uh back. He's it's like some kind of evolutionary thing. Like it's going to be like eventually making itself into an egg. That was like a second thing to what Scott wanted to do. And Scott's original ending. He said was that Ripley shoots the xenomorph with the grappling hook and it doesn't do anything. And the xenomorph just lunges at her and tears her head off. And then (laughs) <laughs> and then it goes to the cobs and you see it fully integrating and it's typing on the computer and then it uses Dallas's voice to say, uh, I'm signing off or something like that. At wow. the end of the uh, movie. That's stupid. I'm glad they didn't do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was something like that. So anyway, I just wanted to share that just for everybody who stuck around with us. Thank you so much. I, I will stop talking about <laughs> alien now well, all right well let's let's uh call except this for one, this guys. one thing no, I'm oh just jesus christ gary. <laughs> <laughs> well where can you guys be found on the internet for our listeners i am at this is gary horde and i also have a wrestling show if you are interested it's at t-i-p-w show it's this is pro wrestling and we are we're, we're we're doing a similar thing to what we're doing with the movies right now but we're doing it with wrestling so if you've ever been interested in pro wrestling and where it comes from what it's all about i think we tell the story in a very fun way and uh you can uh you can listen to that at tipw show you can find all the links and the bios and stuff there we just talked about a guy named the master marvel it's full of impersonations by me is what that show is <laughs> because for some reason everybody leads on me to make impersonations of the people that we're talking about so i have to find like clever ways to to discuss them <laughs> so i have to discuss about this one guy like joe stecker 
who was a champion back in the day, but he practiced his leg scissors, which was his finisher on farm animals. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So then I get to pretend to be Joe Stecker. He sounds a lot like this. I don't do my leg scissors. Don't get nasty now. Justin, I don't do nothing nasty with no pigs. You, you know why you don't do nothing nasty with no pigs, Justin? No, I don't. <laughs> because they'll squeal on you. <laughs> 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 and uh <laughs> and anyway and then my other character we just discussed the first masked wrestler who was the masked marvel and he's just pretty much like hey everybody i'm here i'm the masked marvel mask me anything <laughs> <laughs> anyway all right todd go uh, ahead i'm sorry anyway todd. <laughs> i'm sorry uh, i'm at mr todd a davis on all the socials and uh if you like Star Trek. I have a podcast covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order. Uh, it's called Computer Resume Podcast, and you can find that on Apple and Spotify and Google and on social media at Computer Resume. Yeah. I'm at Justin underscore Bishop. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, or no, I am on Facebook, but don't send me a friend request. I'm on Twitter, <laughs> Instagram. And I don't want people. He's all he's all set. He's all set with friends, folks. <laughs> I'm good. He's the one that I need. <laughs> I mean, but I'll you accept can, your friend you request. I just probably won't see it for like four weeks. But <laughs> uh, but I am on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd. You can you can friend request me on all those places, and you can find the podcast at Cinema underscore Shock on Twitter, Instagram. We are also on Facebook, and we do encourage you to like us there. And uh, you can also rate, review, share this with your friends, especially if they like Alien, apparently, because we can't stop talking about it. And uh, until next week. I'm just sorry. I'm just thrown back by how you big leaked everybody on Facebook. Uh, may the wings uh, of what? liberty, <laughs> may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. <laughs> how I big, big leagued? Yeah, big, league? like big league in them. What does that mean? That just means you're like big time and like you're, you're, uh, I don't know. You know I where just, I got the term from? If you really want to know, it's because apparently before this overly PC culture, no, this sounds like I'm like trying to be anti woke, but supposedly this was a thing in wrestling back in the day, like Randy Orton. So it's not that far back in the day. Like Randy Orton would walk into a writer's room when new writers got hired and he would stick his hand down the front of his tights and fondle his balls and then like reach out to shake hands with one of the rice writers, <laughs> like one of the new writers like, Hey, how's it going? I'm Randy Orton. And if wow. they didn't shake his hand, he's like, what are you like? Big league in me. You think you're too good to talk to Randy Orton? <laughs> I'm not sure how that applies to me. Not wanting friend requests from people. I don't actually, know I'm just saying that's where the big league term <laughs> came from. I'm not saying you're like rubbing your balls to people, but if you do get lucky enough to that's why he doesn't want you to add him on facebook because it's it's all like private it's uh it's just videos of justin rubbing his balls be excellent to each other <laughs> jonesy has the keys uh, join justin yeah. bishop's only fans <laughs>